0: People have forgotten what a freedom to transact means without having to involve a third-party intermediary, without having to prove my identity to some panopticon, without having to demonstrate that I'm a good and loyal subject. No, the government is subject to me. I am the source of sovereignty. You are the source of sovereignty. So let's take that back. Hello there. How are you all doing? Have you had a good start to the week? pretty
1: cool to see Bitcoin showing some strength recently. It was a pretty brutal bear market. I mean, we're still in it, but to see Bitcoin come out there and show a little bit of strength, it gives a little bit of hope to everyone out there because I know how important Bitcoin is to some people, it's important to the work people are doing, some of the activists are doing, some of the companies being built. So it's nice to see some strength back in Bitcoin. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today on the show, I've got Natalie Smolensky back. Now in 2022, I've got to tell you, the show I made with Natalie was my highlight of the year. I absolutely loved it. Loved the whole conversation we had. And so when I had the chance to get her back on the show, I jumped to the chance. And Natalie had just written this amazing article for Bitcoin Magazine titled, It is Time to Refound the American Republic. And with Bitcoin challenging some of our ideas with regards to governance, it was a conversation I really wanted to have. Now, Natalie is amazing, and I know you're all going to love this. The feedback on the last show was incredible, and I think this one's even better. So, listen, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out to me. My email address is hello at did.com. What were you saying? It's uh, allergy season.
0: It it is, yeah. So... Every like January, February um, in Texas, there's like this cedar fever explosion because the ash juniper trees start to pollinate and it's triggered by cold. And so what's interesting is that this year it was triggered by the the freeze mm-hmm. that happened in December. So it was moved up a little earlier, but it lasts for like weeks and I've, yeah, been mainlining Claritin D and Flones and... Both my
1: kids have it. They have hay. We call it hay fever. I don't know if you call it the same.
0: Yeah, uh, it it is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they both have it, and they really. My son especially. His eyes can fully close up, and I don't know why. I I mean, I don't have it. Um, Oh, geez. Yeah. Anyway, nice to see you.
0: (laughs) Good to see you. Happy Friday.
1: Happy Friday. Welcome back. Can I embarrass you? Of course. Uh, The the last show we made at this very table. Yes. uh, Was my favorite show last year. Yeah. No, we really enjoyed it. Um, It was a topic I right at the time I was really interested in, really enjoyed it, and the feedback was fantastic. I mean, you must have seen it.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, I did catch some of it on Twitter.
1: Mm -hmm. I think the things you're interested in writing about are... You're covering something I'm really interested in, in that everything's kind of fucked on a political front, (laughs) and there's so much polarization... Uh, I'm interested in people who are trying to bring people back together rather right. than separate them. Yeah. And uh, so you're the last show of this sprint, the 20th show in 10 days. Yep. Nice. And I've very much been looking forward to this. Great. Okay, so you wrote an article. Yes. In this issue here. Yes. It's time to uh, re-found the American dream in the Orange Party issue. Yes. Why did you attack this subject?
0: I... Broach the subject because I don't think any kind of meaningful um, political reform is possible in the United States without um, moving away from the uh, imperial tradition that has characterized our politics since at least the end of the Second World War. And uh, I say that very advisedly um, because there are many peoples around the world who have counted on uh, America exerting a kind of, uh, global policeman force. But, um, many of those peoples, um, have also experienced that as a double-edged sword. I say this specifically as a Polish-American, you know, so, uh, Poland, you know, the United States, longtime allies, um, there's, there's a lot of, um, I think desire on the part of, uh, the Polish-American community for, America to continue this position of global leadership, but um, I see it as uh, containing unsustainable costs, both for the United States and the world at large. Um, and so I think there are um, difficult diplomatic decisions to be made, um, but they can begin with a recapturing of the foundational American tradition of uh, liberty, not dominion. This was very much the the point of view of the founding fathers and articulated eloquently by uh, John Quincy Adams in the 19th century.
1: Is there a connection between the US's role as like the international policeman, this imperialism which has been largely economic, Mm -hmm. is there a connection between that and the polarization or is it you're just recognizing that there's a, a focus required on, you know, refounding the American way, and in doing so, you just have to discard because it's too much of a distraction. What is the...
0: There absolutely is. Um, So, um, you may be familiar with this uh, phenomenon known as the Triffin Dilemma. Yes. Um, Yep. But Um, explain it to listeners. Basically, the idea is that um, the United States made this kind of bargain um, with not all of the world, but much of the world, um, post-World War II, that in exchange for using the dollar as the global reserve currency, um, the United States would maintain a trade deficit um, with these other countries. And that in effect, was a program of economic uplift. It enabled these countries to earn the dollars that they could then use to trade with the United States. This was a solution to the post-World War II global economic situation where basically everybody but America was broke. Um, And so America had, you know, three-fourths of the world's gold and, um, you know, a vast uh, arsenal and uh, industry, but nobody to trade with. And so this... um, Bargain uh, enabled countries around the world to run trade surpluses vis-a-vis the United States. The problem with that is that it has decimated over time the American productive economy, particularly in manufacturing, um, and it has generated so much dollar surplus uh, in other countries that You know, that needs to be parked somewhere. And so what we've seen is the slow selling off of American hard assets, uh, land um, equity in American companies, which used to be unheard of, um, commodities. Um, And in effect, what that means is we've been selling our country piece by piece to maintain this global dollar reserve supremacy.
1: And how has that affected the country domestically in terms of uh, the very clear polarization that's happened now? Is it is that connected to this?
0: Um, certainly. So the immiseration of the American middle class is something that, you know, has been a multi-generational uh, trajectory. And it's resulted in a lot of political polarization. Um, people want to point fingers at, you know, Culture war is generally the easiest thing, you know, the, the people that I don't like, the political tribe that I don't align with. Um, but ultimately, uh, regardless of who is elected, of who has been elected in the neoliberal age, um, that trend has not reversed. Um, So we've seen, you know, declining standards of living. Um, It's no longer possible for a family to really make ends meet on a single income. I mean, it's very difficult. Um, Spiraling costs of housing, healthcare, education, um, which are also connected to other factors. But in short, um, the vastness of resources that the United States dedicates year after year um, to maintaining this um, status as a global hegemon um, is actually detrimental to the American people at this point.
1: And uh, do you think people are recognize this? I think people recognize this as an issue. There is a problem. Your nation becoming wealthier, but standards of living dropping. I think people recognize there is an issue with politics and media and polarization. Uh, how many people recognize this is connected to what
0: you've said? Relatively few. I would say this is still far from, um, mainstream, let alone consensus. Um, and I mean, that's unsurprising because, um, you know, historically the, the rise and fall of empires has very little to do with, um, public understanding of the causes (laughs) of the rise and fall of empires. Um, empires, uh, Rise when their resource base is expanding, and they fall when their resource base is contracting um, prosaically. Um, and the people may not always understand why it's suddenly contracting. Um, but in this case, it simply has to do with an economic trade off decision that has reached the end of its logic.
1: And you're trying to front run the collapse and resulting revolution by encouraging people to consider that uh, some kind of reform can either minimize the damage that's caused by this or or point the country in a new direction. Absolutely,
0: yeah. So, um, I, I think the imperative to be dominant, to be the world's policeman, has resulted in the United States conducting itself in ways that many Americans wouldn't recognize as what they consider to be American values. Um, and we saw this, you know, particularly after the war in Iraq, but also the, the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, there are now, uh, multiple generations of young people who have grown up with a background of constant war, um, many of them have parents who served or themselves have served. And they have this sense of moral injury, um, which is a psychological phenomenon where they've sacrificed everything in many cases, and they don't really know what it was for. Their lives aren't materially better. They don't particularly feel safer. Um, You know, the global war on terror is no longer the the big salient political issue that it was a couple of decades ago. Now it's uh, the rise of China or Russia. And so there's a sense that there was a political calculus here and not necessarily a moral calculus. Um, And and I think Americans want to be proud of their country. Um, And that starts with who you are. That starts with how you conduct yourself in the world. And when you feel constrained to always be in charge, um, it doesn't give you the space and the freedom um, to consider what might be the moral course of action.
1: Have you watched the series on Netflix, Turning Point? I have not. No. Okay, I recommend it highly. It's a four part. It's a four part series, isn't it? That covers nine eleven, Afghanistan, Iraq, mm-hmm. and as America's role as the world police, whether you agree with it or not, they became the target over years. I mean, generations of. of um, uh, terrorists, whether it was the original, I think it was 1991 attempt at bombing the World Trade Center. I can't mm. remember the exact date, but the embassies around the world. But eventually, nine eleven. Yeah. And there was a lot of sympathy for America and support behind the entering of Afghanistan. Um, I think, and it covers a lot of the reason why that sympathy was lost with Iraq because there was little belief or thought that this was the actions of the world police. This mm-hmm. became more like the actions of the war of a world's bully, Mm -hmm. and a lot of suspicion behind what happened in Iraq. And now I think there is a lot of suspicion behind any form of war, even... I mean, I'm fully supportive of the Ukrainian people Mm -hmm. in their defense of their country, but any kind of financial support to that, the suspicions that this is really to support the military-industrial complex. So I feel like Iraq... Mm -hmm has muddied the waters for anything America does as world police.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, and um, one of the things I pointed out in another one of my essays um, about the end of the petrodollar uh, system is that the invasion of the Iraqs happened happened suspiciously closely to Saddam Hussein publicly declaring that he was going to start pricing oil in euro. Yeah. Um, And he was one of the very few countries in the world um, making that claim. Um, and so there, there is certainly, um, I think, a way in which the petrodollar reserve system really kind of saved the United States' um, global economic position after the closure of the gold window. Um, I mean, it was, it was a Nixon administration priority um, to, to get this deal done. Um, and so preserving that preserving that world order has been um, considered of paramount national strategic importance. I don't want to minimize that. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, it's like it's like being a debtor. You know, if this this was, a, I believe, John Maynard Keynes, but if you owe the bank $1,000, you know, you're in trouble. If you owe the bank a million dollars or, you know, a billion or a trillion, then um, the you own the trouble. bank. Yeah. Um, and so we've kind of become What's interesting is uh, after the closure of the gold window, we actually sold the world our debt as gold. This was no other empire in human history has ever done this. We fully monetized our debt and made that the global reserve asset. But that's put us in a position where we have to keep generating more and more debt in order to prop up the liquidity of the entire global economic system. Um, And that puts us in a terrible position because we inflate our money supply. We immiserate the, the middle class and increasingly uh, the upper middle class and not to speak of the lower class. Like So it's it's really been a, a dangerous set of trade-offs.
1: Can we do the, the background to the article? Yeah. Um, can we talk about uh, your parents moving to the US and what their experience was like for them? Because I, I think that sets out the foundations of what the, like, the what people believe are the traditional American values and why they wanted to come to the U.S. Why right. I, as a kid, always looked to the U.S. and wanted to come here. And yeah. I spent a lot of my time here because, by the way, there's the lens of what you see of the U.S. on media online. But the experience, most of the time, I'm, I'm meeting people like you, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who represent the values what I believe America is about.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so my parents came to the United States in, at the very beginning of the 1980s. They were both software engineers um, in, in an era where that was not yet uh, as common as it is today. Um, and they, they didn't intend to stay. Um, but it just so happened that martial law was declared in Poland um, while they were here. They had both been active in the Solidarity Movement, which was uh, a broad coalition, like society-wide coalition against the communist uh, state. Um, And so they were concerned about being thrown into prison if they were to go back. Um, And so they ended up uh, finding jobs, and uh, I grew up here. I was born here. Um, I, you know, loved it. Um, And so, you know, watching... uh, (laughs) My parents are, like, some of the most patriotic Americans like you'll ever meet, and a lot of immigrants are. They, they truly have made sacrifices to be here. Um, they've never expected anything. They didn't feel entitled to it. They they really came here to work and to make a life for themselves.
1: And um, they, they also have experienced communism.
0: Right. And, and they've seen what the alternative can be. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they, you know, for them, this is the land of opportunity. Um, and it has been for me as well. Um, and so... Th- having a, a kind of allegiance to the values of liberty, of free enterprise, um, that's what I believe America to be. And that, that means you can't have everything. So you can't be the world police and also the land of opportunity at the same time. And that's what we've been learning slowly as a country. Why can't you be there? Because um, it costs everything. If you want to be, any kind of um, power supremacy um, costs you everything over time. This is why authoritarianism is so brittle, um, because it always contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. I mean, it has to be constantly upheld and maintained. Um, The United States spends um, an extraordinary amount um, every year Uh, on the military apparatus, and that's just the known military apparatus. Um, We also, when you have, you know, an apparatus as big as that, you intend to use it. Um, And so there is this constant um, pressure to engage in new forms of covert and overt military conflict. Um, And a, A case in point in this, you know, going back a few decades was um, after the Vietnam War, where, um, you know, that didn't end very well for the United States. And, um, there were, you know, a whole bunch of CIA, uh, agents sort of out of work, um, back in the U.S. stateside, feeling, uh, demoralized. Um, and so we decided to start a proxy war in Angola. Um, and just, like shipped our agents there and, like, completely destabilized this country that most Americans have never even heard of. Um, And so, you know, if you have a hammer, you're inclined to use it. Um, And over time, using that hammer changes who you are. It changes your character. And so now you've traded your character for supremacy. And it's the character piece that I'm most concerned with. So if,
1: if the US was, if, you know, if your thesis is correct and as a country, it decided to reestablish its values, you know, resign from its role as world police, how does this actually happen? Like, what are the things we're talking about? Is it removing Americans from all these bases around the world? You know, because the, pol- you know, the role of world police is something that has to come to force when there's required support and action. Right. You know, when there's... Certain regions that are being destabilized, but there is also this kind of like, uh, this kind of dis, dif, this. I don't. I'm not sure how to put it, but there's this kind of protective layer that the US has built around the world. You know, whether it's in Japan or you know trying to support Taiwan in the South China Sea or, you know, bases in Germany or, I mean, I've seen these maps. I mean, mm-hmm. can you try and find that map of U.S. bases around the world? <laughs> yeah. are, are we talking about scaling this all back and America coming back to within the confines of its own borders?
0: Yeah, so um, there's not going to be a, a simple way to do this, yeah. but there can be a clear-sighted way to do it. Yeah. There always needs to be a positive project. Um, a a negative project isn't going to work. It's not, it's not something that will motivate people or serve as a coherent rubric for action. Hmm. So from my point of view, um, the positive project here is to be a good neighbor. And I'm literally talking about, you know, Mr. Rogers, uh, good old fashioned Republican American values um, of being a good neighbor and asking ourselves, What does that mean? First of all, with our most proximate neighbors, with Canada and Mexico, let's just start there. Let's just start North America. What does it mean for us to be a good neighbor to our actual, the countries that we share a border with? And then let's, you know, let's ask about uh, Cuba and the Caribbean and Latin America. Like, and we can begin expanding from there. And over time, we can as we're guided by this philosophy, or this commitment, um, we will begin to organically make trade-off decisions between what being a good neighbor is, um, finding that fit, finding that win-win for both parties, without overextending, um, and that can guide our policy.
1: Yeah, because I wonder what that even means. Me and Danny were talking about this the other day. Uh, we were, we were interviewing a guy who runs Gridless down in mm-hmm. Africa, and he was very critical of NGOs, but a lot of the work NGOs is, is it is it good intentions, misguided intentions? How do you avoid right. having misguided intentions, feeling like you're supporting a country, but actually you're destabilizing it, or you're ca- trying to change the culture of a country to something that isn't American?
0: That's, that's a great question. Um, and I think it starts with being honest about your own interests. And so being a good neighbor doesn't mean pretending that you're a selfless altruist. No country around the world believes that, you know, uh, America or any other country acts, you know, selflessly on the world stage. There's always a question of interest. And this is where, you know, I actually have a a background in um, sales and business development. In that kind of situation, it's very clear what's going on. I'm selling a product. There's a potential buyer on the other side of the table. Um, my interest is clear, but also their interest needs to be clear. Um, and sales works not by strong-arming, but by finding fit, so that both parties walk away from the transaction feeling like they've benefited in some way. Um, and that's that's the ethic that I think we need to recover. And no longer trying to sell democracy around the world. Right. I mean, we, we can stand for democracy, but it's like John Quincy Adams says, we have to embody ourselves those democratic values. It is our example which stands for democracy, not our military intervention. Um, And honestly, you know, there are countries, many countries around the world, where American intervention, even very well-intentioned, has sabotaged the cause of democracy. There are autocracies that exist because You know, we took out the guys who we thought were the bad guys, but they ended up being the most likely vector of democratic reform. And so now there's nobody. Um, And so by being, by focusing on ourselves being who we espouse to be, um, that gives other people courage to themselves make the sacrifices that will build their own future,
1: yeah, I had Alex Gladstein on here recently. We were discussing the IMF and the World Bank, and he's written a long piece discussing U.S. Uh, economic imperialism. And he talked about how in certain countries that the U.S. would make significant loans mm-hmm. and uh, to help. You know, grow and support the country uh, but in doing so create trade relationships where the resources of that country would be fed back to the US mm-hmm. um, he gave a few specific examples but he often talked about uh, these often propped up uh, authoritarian regimes because you had corrupt people within the country willing to take the money and sell off the resources uh, but I also know yeah in your article you talked about the fall of the Soviet Union and the IMF the World Bank mm-hmm. that the they relied on the loans to maintain democracy. So there's a there's kind of a conflict contradiction between what right. you're saying and and what Alex Gladstein has said to me. And I guess both could be true.
0: Yeah. So, you know, the the history of these multilateral lending institutions like the IMF and the World Bank is very interesting. They they were founded in the era of um, high liberalism, high internationalism um, in the West. Um, in, largely prompted by this desire to never again experience something like a world war. Um, so, you know, we tried after the First World War, tried again after the Second World War. Um, and the, the idea was that if there was a global body that was a lender of last resort for countries that nobody else wanted to lend to... Um, then maybe we could avoid some of, you know, the terrible conflicts that we had seen. Now, um, the the problem with being a lender of last resort is that that's a position of immense power. So everything you do is highly leveraged and you can end up, you know, just moving a little bit and squashing like an entire generation. Um, and so the power that these institutions have wielded has been um, often profoundly destructive, it also um, has often been the only reason that, you know, people in some countries were fed um, because their governments were so corrupt that there was no bilateral, there was no other country or private lending institution that was willing to, to lend to them um, because they couldn't trust them. Um, and so it's, it's very difficult to extricate yourself from that but it's it's also I mean if you go back further this is this is part of the legacy of of colonialism as well is that many of these countries were colonies they had independence movements they were liberated but their resources and their economic institutions were still entirely owned by the West um, and so they you know they had entrepreneurial politicians um, who knew how to advance their own personal interests um, in amidst this web of of great power politics
1: it sounds very messy yeah it's extremely messy yeah and if and if the us was to you know, resign from its position of world police what are the considerations towards handing this the role to China or um, not so much that I believe China would want to be world police but by changing the power structure of yeah, across the world, and you know we've seen with the Belt and Road initiative that China is willing mm-hmm. to make significant loans to countries, and those countries have become indebted. They end up owning their ports or having considerable power. Yeah, like what risk is there with consideration for that? Because yeah, my my bro- brother, I talked to him about this, and you know my brother is a very he's very much anti-war. You know, yeah. He marched against the Iraq War. But he sees a higher risk of giving power or changing the power structure and giving more strength to China. He sees that as a much more risky scenario for the world.
0: Yeah. No, I I think the United States no longer being the global hegemon does not mean that there is some other country out there who would be a better hegemon. (laughs) Um, There is, in fact, the structure of hegemony is the problem. But. I would, I would encourage you to consider this. Um, I mean, what if, like, imagine that, you know, China had a client state that bordered the United States, like, um, you know, Mexico or something, and that they had fully militarized it. They had bases there. They would do, you know, regular military exercises, land, air, and sea. Um, and somehow claimed this territory as part of their sphere of influence. Well, we might we might rightly ask: they're all the way on the other side of the world. Like, what are they doing here? Like, why is why are they asserting this as their sphere of dominance? Um, and and so this, I mean, this also gets at the Russian concerns about it's expansion of NATO. NATO. Yeah. Um, the problem isn't that countries, smaller countries, are defending themselves against Russian aggression. Um, that is obviously a prerogative of any sovereign state. The problem is that um, the United States established itself post, post-World War II as sort of the military protector of Europe. Um, and so European countries have uh, indigenous defense forces, but um, they still largely rely on the United States for protection. And this is Putin's point. Is he's basically like, if, you, if you're not militarily sovereign, you're not sovereign. And so, who's really the sovereign? Well, over Europe. It's the United States. And so, it's a, it's a war in Ukraine, but it's a war against the United States. Um, this, is, this is part of, um, I think, I mean, there, there, are, there are many considerations here, but the point is that this prerogative that many Americans feel is just second nature to just be anywhere at any time and self-evidently be in charge that's a problem. This show is brought to you by Ledden. Now, from
1: savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Leden's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledden only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledger is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledger sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledger.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, it is Ledger. Now recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is, and Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast. And I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P. Dot ledger.com Also today we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other, and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Yeah, um, I, th- I think many other countries around the world would be fearful of the U.S., and in its protection for other countries. But then, alternatively, I don't... I mean, who's to know whether this would make the world a safer place? I Right. Who's to know? Um, you, you talked about in the article, or you mentioned, the, you're seeing, like, uh, a rise of... Well, there is a rise of socialism around the world, or mm-hmm. a threatened rise of socialism. Do you see this as a rejection of capitalism? Why is this happening?
0: Um, the pie is growing at a much slower rate. right? Um, so... The when does a civilization feel confident? It feels confident when it's expanding. Um, it's expanding when the economic pie is growing fast enough that generally standards of living are uh, being raised. Um, people feel that they have opportunity prospects. Um, that trend has reversed, um, not just in the United States, but but we're experiencing. The world. It. Yep.
1: Yeah, in the UK, we were experiencing that.
0: Absolutely. And so, what what happens when the pie starts to um, shrink? Well, people start clamoring over the existing resources, and calls for uh, redistribution become uh, louder. Calls for um, punishing corruption become louder. This often, you know, becomes a kind of populism, you know. People like to say right wing or left wing, but I don't really think those terms are appropriate. I think there's a kind of inchoate sense that the elites as such are, they've gotten too top heavy. And that is in fact uh, materially the case. Um, elites consume more resources than any other stratum of the population. Um, And as, you know, they have children, they reproduce, and they expand generation after generation, they want all of their children to be situated also as elites. And so you can't have a shrinking economic pie and a growing elite base forever. Eventually, the elites also start to feel constraints. Um, And really, there's a a historian, uh, Peter Turchin, who argues that um, prior to the advent of capitalism um, in the agricultural world, um, it was actually these battles between elite factions that spelled the end of empires.
1: Hmm. I think. I think the. Uh, I think during COVID, during the era of COVID and post-COVID, we we really had a light shone upon a separation between them, them and us in, t- mm-hmm. in two ways. I think during the uh, COVID era, we had the light shone on this kind of separation between the the, the elites and the the peasants. In that, <laughs> and I think it was in two ways. Yeah. Um, uh, with the um, the numbers that were published, how some of the richest people in the world got much richer, and mm-hmm. then we all saw you know, companies had to close down bakeries, ice cream. Right. Shop. I mean, we had Michael Malice in here yesterday. He was talking about how he left New York. He said all the, you know, all the Interesting little quirky shops—they've all closed. You know, all the mm-hmm. cafes, the ice cream shops. We we saw all that, but we also saw the ridiculous thing where there would be some kind of event—a Met Gala or whatever. Nobody was wearing a mask, but all the staff were. Yeah. And I think it was the kind of like this really grotesque um, display of of separation between elites and everyone else. Yeah. Look, there's always going to be wage disparities. There is always going to be rich and poor. But to have it so grotesquely put in people's face, now you add to that since then, you know, a lot of suspicion about well, the truth that's coming to us. We've seen a lot of suspicion with regards to media. I mean, that the I yeah you know, malice corrected me and say mainstream media, call it corporate media. But there's a lot of suspicion to the incentives now. So I I I feel like we're in this place of you know teaching on. on Potential revolution, and I don't say that lightly. Mm -hmm. But I just think people are fucking fed up.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I I think that's true. I don't Uh, want a
1: socialist revolution, though.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, every revolution is messy, um, and and revolutions tend to, um, they tend to replace one set of elites with another. Um, The, the question of whether or not they affect actual structural change that will materially uplift um, the condition of the people is a whole separate question. Um, and you know in some cases, redistributive revolutions have had um, near-term equalization effects. But the problem with mere redistribution is that if you're not generating the economic flywheel, if you're not preserving the engines of wealth generation, Um, then you're going to just run into the same problem that the past regime ran into. And this is why capitalism matters. It's not because it's morally virtuous. It's because it's the most reliable social technology we have for growing the pie. Like, before the 19th century, like, net world economic growth was um, almost stagnant. Like, most people would make the same amount, like, of money or resources for their entire life, um, and that also meant the pace of social change was much slower. But once the Industrial Revolution hits, um, once capital becomes a technology, you start just seeing spikes in uh, economic growth and f- much faster changing standards of living, culture change, um, education, science, I mean, everything takes off. Which is not to say that it's been great for everybody, but there is no meaningful alternative that doesn't shrink the pie.
1: And shrinking the pie is what leads to famine and, and
0: uh, yeah, rolling hunger. revolution. Well, Yeah, and, <laughs> and
1: potentially millions of deaths. You know, the, mm-hmm. the reason we had Malice in was we were talking about uh, the Soviet Union and what happened under mm-hmm. their uh, communist revolution. You know, tens of millions of people died. Was it tens of millions? Millions, maybe a couple of tens of... Yeah, yeah, I don't know the yeah. numbers, but a lot of fucking people died.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, what's what's interesting is that... Um, you, can't, you can't destroy the productive class. Right. And Lenin actually realized this. So, after the Bolshevik Revolution, um, there was a period of time when uh, the Communist Party wanted to, you know, do away with money. They dissolved the central bank, they printed quadrillions of rubles, just literally hyperinflated the currency away. Um, People began, you know, bartering just to go about their daily lives. Um, and Lenin quickly realized that he actually couldn't um, build uh, the Soviet Union into an industrial power without um, some value, some stable peg of value that could be a store of wealth and a medium of exchange. So he brought back the central banker <laughs> um, and re-established a bank, reissued the currency, um, and in fact embraced something called the New Economic Theory, which, which was also the model for Deng Xiaoping's reforms in China um, that led it to be basically a, a market economy. Um, so, uh, you know, Lenin's thinking was that Um, you actually had to have entrepreneurial activity. The the small business, the entrepreneur, um, and the worker were all united in this common cause of building the socialist republic. And um, the early USSR actually saw some of the fastest economic growth rates in the world um, because they were, I mean, they were an agrarian economy industrializing. And whenever you do that, you just, I mean, your GDP goes through the roof because you're literally... Um, exponentially increasing your productive capacity.
1: So where did the Soviet Union fail where perhaps China has succeeded?
0: So that's, I mean, that's a great question. Um, And I am not uh, a historian of either of these places in enough depth to probably answer it satisfactorily.
1: Can you point us where we should look?
0: Yeah, but I would suggest, you know, uh, some of the major reasons that have been identified for... The, uh, the slowdown in growth in the Soviet Union is, interestingly, around um, a kind of resource protectionism. So um, not wanting to basically be self-sufficient, um, which uh, is, is, I think, a, a noble intention. But when your economy is growing, you know, sometimes there need to be periods of time when you are reliant on, you know, foreign sources of whatever. Um, there also was this phenomenon whereby the state, um, kept plowing resources into factories, um, that were no longer productive. So it was a kind of propping up, um, you know, again, well-intentioned, not wanting these, you know, workers to lose their jobs, these factory towns to basically become miserated. I mean, look what happened in Detroit. Or the United States, you know, uh, we just kind of, like, abandoned that city. Um, the Soviet leadership didn't want to do that, because, after all, it was supposed to be a workers' party. But the problem with that is that the factories weren't solvent. They weren't able to keep up with um, the productive demands of a growing economy. And so, eventually, the state just couldn't prop it up anymore. The state does run out of resources, Um, And we're seeing, you know, these cascading defaults start to happen around the world now. Um, The United States is in a privileged position because all of our debt is denominated in the currency that we print. And so there's there's a bandwidth that we have to kind of print away um, our insolvency for a certain period of time. But eventually, the question of real value always catches up with you. Is your productive economy able to support the level of debt that you have? And I would suggest the answer is no.
1: So can we talk specifically about China? Uh, for, a, for a country, uh, an authoritarian country, um, it has been economically successful over the last, what, would you mm-hmm. say, two decades?
0: Um, so the the real kind of post-Mao reforms started happening in uh, the late 70s, early okay. 80s. Um, and they've They've continued dramatically. And and now the problem is, you know, China's facing many of the same problems as the United States, which is that they have um, a a tip top elite of super rich um, people, many of whom uh, have been engaged in scandals around, you know, not paying taxes and um, incurred public outrage around ostentatious spending and lavish lifestyles. And so the the Chinese state is really trying to ramp that in, or or reel that in, like mm. um, you know, dissent okay. also, right? And so this is the problem with with the exercise of state power. It's always you know framed publicly in this in these virtuous ways. You know, we're fighting corruption, we're fighting terrorism, we're fighting money laundering, we're, f- we're fighting crime. But, you know, as we're fighting all this other stuff, we may also fight the people who are genuinely criticizing us for reasons that we need to be criticized.
1: I mean, Jack Ma has just uh, agreed to step down from Alibaba. What's the, what's the wider company? Is the Alibaba the main company? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Did you see this? I, I did this not. week Ant Group, yeah. yeah. So he yeah Ant Group. So it was. Have you got the article? Because yep. he went missing for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he would have been, I think only mildly critical, mm-hmm. and so he'd been missing for a while, probably in some reeducation camp somewhere. <laughs> um. So here, yeah, yeah, to give up control of China's Ant Group, Jack Ma will see control of Chinese fintech uh, giant Ant Group. The company announced following the Communist Party crackdown on the nation's tech sector that target the targeted the char- characteristic billionaire. One of China's most blah 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 blah, but the former teacher uh, had retreated from public view since Beijing torched and planned an IPO in Hong Kong following his barbed comments about government regulators.
0: Yeah, his company. Yeah, he also met publicly with Trump, which um, I, I saw someone comment um, recently that you know, uh, in China, if you're if you're a captain of industry. Uh, you cannot also be a diplomat. <laughs> if, right. if you try to cross into the sphere of politics, it's sort of overstepping uh, your bounds.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, but but he was critical yeah. of the regulators and right. suddenly disappeared, and now yeah. he's back and he's going to have control of his group. Um, it, it's very authoritarian, and, <laughs> and uh, but it's I guess the thing I wanted to talk about is like even... Yeah, as an outsider, we're all very critical of China. Mm-hmm. Despite us, you know, having iPhones and such, we're all yeah. very critical of China. Um, but they have also managed to grow their economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you said they've lifted seven hundred fifty thousand people out of poverty. Seven hundred fifty million. Sorry, seven hundred fifty million people out of po- poverty, yeah. and so, like, what are the what are the trade offs right. here?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, th- that's exactly right. Um, the question that many U.S. elected officials are asking openly now is, why can't we be more like China? (laughs) And that chorus is only going to grow. Um, But that's
1: actually very anti-American because (laughs) all the the films and TV shows that kind of refer to the, I don't know, this may be the era of the 50s, 60s, it was like, are they communists? (laughs) Where are the commies? (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, it seemed to be, like, everything Everything America stood for was anti-communism.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. And
1: the threat of the expansion of communism around the world. Right, right. And now, I mean, I know that they're not communist anymore, even though they're the Chinese Communist Party, there is a certain amount of entrepreneurial spirit, but they certainly are authoritarian.
0: Yeah. Um, there, There's an economist who uh, recently wrote about um, how the the main paradigm of political economy going into the 21st century is not capitalism or socialism, but a dirigiste economy. Um, so that's a French term for um, a market economy that is centrally directed. So it's it's neither, you know, full single party economic planning, nor is it free markets. It's The state is kind of the benevolent steward of the market um, and takes a very active role in shaping the market. Um, And I I would suggest that, um, you know, China's perhaps on a more authoritarian um, end of that spectrum, but most Western governments at this point aren't that different, um, aren't materially different. They may, in their rhetoric and in their cultural traditions, have these traditions of liberty, but um, in practice, um, the state is uh, sort of seen as the arbiter of virtually everything from speech to economic transacting to- Castos. Yeah, I mean, like literally every little thing. Um, And again, we talked about the hammer and the nail problem. Like you have a huge military, you're gonna use it. Um, The political class, their mandate is to pass laws. <laughs> and so um, they tend to approach solving problems by passing more laws instead of thinking about. You I'm, know, just, I'm
1: sorry, yeah. the reason I'm giving not to Danny, you <laughs> yeah, know what I am thinking? It's the Mark Moskwa. It's the Mark quote. What is it? Uh, every new law, whether good or
0: bad, means less freedom, mm-hmm.
1: roughly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Unless it's a law to remove a, a bunch of laws. But yeah, generally speaking.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it, the laws, we never get less laws. Like, we don't get fewer laws. We get more laws. We get uh, more complex layering of laws. And this then requires more administrators to interpret the laws and more complexity in the layers of governance that oversee these societies. And so the state gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, that trajectory uh, isn't going to be reversed through rhetoric. It, it actually we need real action here and it's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of resistance to it.
1: It it also, it also damages productivity. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are like, uh, to say that you you don't get the removal of laws. I was memorized out in Wyoming uh, with Tyler Lindholm and he talked to me, he was talking to me about licenses. It's like, you have to have a license to be a hairdresser. I was like, why do you have to have a license to be a hairdresser? (laughs) Either you can cut hair or you can't. And I think, (laughs) you know, you do get periods of, would you not argue deregulation is a removal of regulations?
0: Perhaps, but they're the exception,
1: yeah, not the, the rule. The there is a net. I mean, Eric Voorhees, one of my very first interviews. Yeah, you know, he's a, a libertarian, talked about you know the size of the state. He said, "I'm not even asking for the abolition of the state, or <laughs> I just can we just get one percent smaller, right? Can we just get yeah just a little bit, and then maybe t- target five percent." Um. But yeah, it, it yeah, the nuclear industry has been hamstrung by mm-hmm. regulation. Um That's right. Yeah, certain things with with it, even what I do in the UK like certain rules are holding back my business, the ability to get bank accounts. I'm now actually being investigated um for buying a house because I've sold Bitcoin in the past. Huh. There's so many things like that that get in the way. Right. Yeah. You know, but but how do you how do you get these reforms? Because I'm with you Natalie. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. How do you do it? So, um, I think there has to be uh, a generational turnover in leadership. Um, and that in itself, that's sort of necessary, but not sufficient, because...
1: Why, though, a generational turnover in leadership? Are you talking about the political class? Uh,
0: I am talking about the political class, yes, um, because um, I, I would suggest that the current generation of political leadership has been formed under a paradigm of geopolitical relations and economic, um, well, let's just say political economy, that is profoundly in this direction of um, good guy, American king, um, dirigiste state economies, a sort of top-down, federated uh, system of control that um, ensures that the world functions smoothly. Well, uh, that's a very coherent picture, and it's comforting. Um, the prospect of a more decentralized, multipolar world is terrifying um, to many people in in the current generation, and you know, even even the people who do lean more libertarian. I I think the the younger generation um, hasn't inherited the assumptions of the post war order. They're um, entirely digitally native. Um, So the world is at their doorstep and has been at their doorstep from childhood. Um, They have known nothing but economic crises um, and a shrinking of prospects um, and lowering of standard of living. And so I think they're open. But the question is always, open to what? And this is why there has to be leadership. There have to be people, voices in the public sphere who are speaking in terms of character and not just of getting yours or getting revenge against the bad people who took things away from you. No. Who are you going to become? What are you going to build? What are you going to invest in and sacrifice for? That's the world that you're going to create.
1: We seem to have very few people of that kind of character and quality about at the moment. (laughs) Because, I, I mean, you talk about a turnover, a generational turnover of the political class, but we do see people are entering the realm of politics, new, interesting, you know, you can believe they want to change, they, you can believe they stand for something, but they seem to get co-opted by the system very quickly, the incentive structure, the, the horse trading that goes on behind scenes. I mean, we talked about it the other day, and, yeah. you know, this, whatever you think of Matt Getz and mm-hmm. his questionable dating, <laughs> um, you know, you know he, he he appeared to be standing for something. Right. And... You got a little whisper in his ear from the Godfather, and changed his vote. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, you know, I wonder how difficult it is to get anything done mm-hmm. because the incentives of the system completely screwed.
0: Yeah, well, this is this is the problem: is that even the um, revolutionary voices or the rebellious voices are themselves beholden to an authority structure. Um, it's sort of it may be a mirror image. Authority structure of the one that's dominant, um, but you know this is uh, this is very much like you know the the sort of dichotomy between obedience and rebellion that is such a cultural trope in like teenage life or growing up. You know, putting on the leather jacket and you know showing my parents that I'm independent by rebelling. Well. Um, you're still acting in reference to their authority when you're doing that. You're just now opposed to it, rather than for it. And people who ping-pong between obedience and rebellion their whole lives never actually individuate. And so what Mm. I'm talking about... Is a kind of cultural individuation where you become autonomous. You act without reference to authority. It doesn't mean you don't have authorities. It doesn't mean authorities don't exist. They're always going to be authorities. It's a social technology. But you are an autonomous, individuated human being who navigates authority structures.
1: This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is dot tio Also, today we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. So I get a note earlier when you talked about uh, yeah, reformation, uh, re-refounding re- the American dream based on traditional Republican values. Mm-hmm. So I'm bringing that up because you said, you know, there is so much polarization. Yeah, to sell in uh, reform <laughs> based on traditional Republican values. On a person-by-person a person count, you may be losing plus 50% of the nation. <laughs> certainly close to 50% of the nation. And I think some people might say, no, the problem is we haven't evolved from traditional mm-hmm. Republican values and the world has changed. How can you ever get reform when, when the reform is based on uh, one political wing? Yeah. Are there not traditional American values that span...
0: Americans, absolutely, yeah, and and when I said that, I was I was being somewhat tongue in cheek. Okay,
1: um, I mean, look, when I think of traditional American values, I yeah. think Republican.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's kind of been the brand, this is why every Democratic uh, presidential administration basically governs like a Republican administration um, from a policy standpoint. I mean, th- there really is no meaningful difference. Um, I would suggest. Uh, between the parties on most issues. There are a few issues where there is a difference, and for some people, those are the issues that they will f- vote on forever. Um, but there is absolutely a bipartisan um, consensus that um, is, is basically has shoehorned politics into, you know, different flavors of the same thing. And so when I, you know, invoked Mr. Rogers earlier, yeah. I mean, he was a a, a minister, uh, of a Republican, but he never talked about politics on his show. There was nothing political. It was... It, he was coming out of the era of um, children's theater, puppet theater, um, where the interest in the developing child was considered to be central to building the character of the next generation of American citizens um, and, and their friends. And so... You know, there's a real, um, I think, openness that has been lost. You know, America is a nation of immigrants. A lot of people believe that, genuinely, on all sides uh, of the aisle. America is a diverse nation. Um, But there's a kind of culture of hospitality that I think has a spiritual center You know, in his case, he was a man of faith. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to be a religious person to have this conviction, but the openness of heart, the willingness to reach across difference with the understanding that you and the person across the table will forever be different. The goal is not sameness, the goal is doing something together. That's what a shared project is. And that's the only reason that. America matters, from my point of view.
1: Yeah, we had a guy on the podcast last week, Vivek, I can't say his name. Ramaswamy. Yeah, Ramaswamy. Um, We're not sure we 100% agree with him. Danny, you would be a little bit more skeptical than I am. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I brought up this, the polarization, and he said there isn't really... A, a true left-right divide. The mm-hmm. real divide is between the management uh, class and the citizenry. Mm. And when you talk about the management class, that could be from within politics, within um, uh, within um, large tech companies, you know, the people who get to make the decisions. And there's mm-hmm. this kind of collusion that happens between them that we saw with, you know, some of the Twitter files that have been released. Yeah. And, like, my comparison to that is in the UK, we have the nurses have been on strike recently mm-hmm. and they're all strike they're all very similar people with the very same standard of living living mm. a very similar life but they are struggling with the rise of inflation and rise of cost of living you who know, as nurses and they want to pay a rise yeah. and when they're on the picket line striking it doesn't really matter what party they represent right. they actually have the same goals, the same kind of objectives, the things things they want to do. And I do wonder how much the incentive models of politicians and media is divide people who genuinely are kind of on the same team. Right. So whether I agree with Vivek or not, I do recognize that actually there are a lot of people, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you, you're being punished the same way by a broken system of incentives, but you're being, you're being tricked into creating the wrong enemy.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this is, and what's funny about this is that, um, I mean, this was Marx's analysis of the German ideology in in the 19th century, is is that this is how class politics works, is it works um, when the elites exacerbate uh, cultural divisions between the working class to prevent them from recognizing their shared interests as, in fact, the majority. And the people who produce most of the value that the managerial class siphons off. Um, And so, you know, the question is not so much as, you know, the managerial class or the capital class or the elites, are they like evil? Um, Or, I mean, do they serve a purpose in society? They do, clearly. There, There has to be an executive function for personalities of a higher order for human collectives to uh, move in a certain direction to, to produce value. Um, the question is, is the um, distribution of rewards, of economic rewards, proportionate to the value that's created? Um, nope. <laughs> right. And, and this is why we have, you know, what some would call class struggle and what others would call, you know, simply uh, freedom of contract. You know, if, if you as my employer are not compensating me adequately for the labor that I provide, I'm going to go elsewhere. Um, and the problem is when the managerial apparatus either of the state or of the private sector gets so heavy that people can no longer meaningfully exercise that freedom.
1: Same with the truckers.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. I, that's why in some ways, uh, sometimes I'm like, I should just stay away from politics. But I, I'm so interested in it because I'm interested in the solution. Mm-hmm. I think so many people focus on uh, what divisor separates us and then, you know, support this machine and perhaps I've done it at times myself, but I'm always looking out for the people who are like yourself, who is looking for a solution because right. this is so utterly broken and having, it's it's not benefiting hardly anyone. Yeah. This, is, this is fragmented society, you know, it's causing division. I just fucking hate the whole thing, but that's why <laughs> I was, you know, Andrew, Yang, I find Andrew Yang so interesting. Uh-huh. You know, I disagree with him on UBI, right? Absolutely disagree yeah. with him on UBI, UBI, but he's at least going we need something different. Even Brett Weinstein, what was the he, um He started to try a new political party. He had an mm-hmm. idea where we would get uh, somebody from the right and somebody from the left and form a party together. Mm-hmm. we get some strength from both sides and get them to work together. These, you know, whether these ideas are naive or work, it's at least there are some people with strength out there saying, we need to fix this and change this. this which is why I kind of, I want so much more out of Elon Musk. Mm. Like, yeah. that's the kind of person you think, just, you know, stop being captured by the audience. Like, mm-hmm. make a difference.
0: Right. No, and, and this, is, this is actually um, the caustic nature of the celebrity culture yeah. that we inhabit now. Is it, I mean, it'll fry your brain. And this is one of the things that I myself, you know, am careful of. Like, every public appearance that I make is something that I treat with great respect. You know, it's like a wild animal because you don't want it to wield you. You want to be sure that you are wielding your public personality um, and that you are in service to the organizations and the people that you're responsible for.
1: So there's a, a wild Natalie Smolenski under there that we... <laughs> if we prod in the way, right way, we will get you to
0: Well, any, any kind of amplification, whether it's through um, celebrity or power yeah. or money is uh, you're you're dealing with wild forces, um, and if you don't know yourself, then um, they will own you. In fact, you will own yourself.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the big issue with like we notice with audience capture. Once right. you're captured, getting yourself out of that position right. is very difficult. Difficult because again, back to incentives. Right. Your incentive is to you know. Uh, Your your incentive is to dog whistle the audience you've created.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, But I had it when I was with Eric Weinstein, we did this interview in, um, we're in LA. He he said, discard 10%, let's get get rid of 10, 20% of your audience now. Let's insult them and get rid of them. Like, keep (laughs) shedding your audience, keep willing to let them go, say things they don't wanna hear, because then the audience you have is gonna respect you for the honesty of opinion, Mm -hmm. and they're gonna trust you and you have integrity. So many people out there have just been captured. I always, Tim Paul's always a great example for me. Mm. You know, I just, I just think he's become a dick, mm. and that's going to piss people off on this. But he is so captured by his audience that he dog whistles them the whole time. And I, for me, I, I think I have the strength to go, okay. I like some of what you say and some of what you don't say. I think other people don't. Yeah. And so those people add, you know, and by the way, people criticize the mainstream media. These people are making the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. They're doing exactly, no, exactly the same, exactly the same fucking thing <laughs> that, that, you know, someone like Tim Paul will criticize the mainstream media. And I'm like, You're, you've got the same right. playbook. right? You've got the same incentives. You want to, you want to separate your audience. You want a dog whistle. You want to build up this kind of uh, rabid following. And, you, you know, you you are contributing to the same problem. It really pisses me off. Anyway, Natalie, <laughs> what, what, is, what is the answer?
0: <laughs> the answer is the slow, hard work of coalition building and uh, character building in a shared project. And that's the question. Um, what is the American project? And I would suggest um, that the American project is one of... Um, prosperity and opportunity, regardless of who you are or where you come from. Um, if, you, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, um, you know, whether you're generating capital or knowledge or, you know, any other form of innovation, you should be welcome here. Is that not true anymore? I think, I think it is, but less and less so. I think it's becoming harder and harder for either people born in America or who immigrate to America to make it. Um, And Uh, that needs to be fixed.
1: So you can come here, but like making it, is that also a barrier? Right. What are the
0: barriers that are up? Well, we have a very um, uh, Byzantine and bureaucratic uh, visa process that routinely just leaves um, thousands of people, highly qualified um, people, uh, either out of the country or forces them to leave, um, unable to set down the roots that they need to meaningfully build something here. Um, meanwhile, you know, we have uh, immigrants leading, like, the top ten technology companies in the United States. And so there's, there's clearly a mismatch between our need for talent and our ability to uh, import the talent that we need to sustain the, the engine of economic growth. And then, you know, for homegrown talent, um, the, the challenge is, you know, one often of economic hardship um, and an education system that mirrors the hardship of the local communities. Um, and so you have... These are vicious cycles. And that visa
1: system, would you say that's just a function of more laws, more rules, right. m- yeah. more bureaucracy?
0: No, exactly. Um, and there's, there's a lot of political grandstanding around immigrant visas because, um, you know, political administrations want to appear tough on immigration or, you know, like they're prioritizing uh, American jobs, you know, jobs for Americans. Um, but the reality is, and and actually uh, Elon Musk uh, has spoken about this, is that um, economic prosperity, you know, generally relies on um, either like rapid population growth or a lot of immigration um, because you need to generate the productive capacity and and that's your human capital. And so if you have a shrinking population and you're not replenishing um, kind of influx of fresh talent, then your economy will contract over time.
1: And does this also become political? Because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but immigrants are more likely to vote Democrat.
0: Um, You know, I I think there's... There are certain groups of immigrants that are targeted by, you know, whatever the hate message of the day is, Um, but I would say immigrants on the whole are extremely diverse. Um, I I grew up in a community of immigrants, many, you know, from all over the world, and I would say the vast majority of them voted Republican. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Uh that's not a function of the geography where
0: you're from? Um, it is to a certain extent. Um, it's also a function of profession. There are certain professions that tend to vote Republican or okay. Democrat. Um, that may have changed, you know, since I was growing up in that community. But um, these are, you know, when we, when we talk about party affiliation, we're talking about culture. You know, people are often Democrats or Republicans in the sense that they're, you know, Methodists who go to this church or, you know, they're, you know, from this particular neighborhood. Um, and, and so this, this is why I'm, I'm actually hesitant to label people yeah. um, because I've spoken to people with very different party affiliations, um who who agree on issues that they would never think they agree on, um, but for cultural reasons they can't be seen together or affiliate with one another
1: <laughs> God um, okay, can you help me just understand uh, just some historical context back uh, hundreds of years ago when um, America established the Bill of rights and the Constitution and the forefathers were debating it, were there still two? You know, how was the political divide then? And how how were these issues debated?
0: Do you mean around um, power projection outside of the United no, States? No,
1: I'm literally, no, 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 just within the United States. When the forefathers mm. were debating the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and I know there were certain things that were written anonymously, mm-hmm. but during that period, the people, because I, I am yeah. clueless to this, the people, the forefathers themselves, were they Republicans, were they Democrats, was it a mix?
0: There, so those parties didn't exist. Okay, so um, what existed then? There, I, would, I would say North that, and the South. Uh, yeah, I mean, there were, there were profound geographic divisions. So the main question in, like, the early, early American Republic was, to what extent are we a coherent project, a coherent state? Um, there was a lot of opposition to um, the Constitution um, for the reason that people in in all of the different states were suspicious that a federal government would rob them of their liberties, and each state had a very distinct culture uh, a distinct um, history, like reason for formation, um, like literally different populations were sent there or chose to immigrate there from Europe, um, and that created different different state cultures. And so there there was the sense that every state was sovereign, and you know, much like in the European Union today, that uh, joining this larger federation would result in a compromise of state sovereignty. Um, and so, actually, the um, the anti-Federalists were um, just as vocal and popular as the Federalists were. Um, and in many states, ratification of the Constitution happened through, like, some really strong arm tactics. Like, people being tarred and feathered and, like, physically, like, beat up in, in public. Um, there was... I mean, it was a violent era. Um, and so you know, there was a question of, uh, is America a country? Like, is it a coherent project? And eventually, the the Federalists won. Um, I would suggest, though I'm not a historian of this era, because the logic of common defense was still so fresh. There was still the sense that um, if we didn't Unite. If we didn't, at the very least, share an armed forces, we were vulnerable to being, you know, taken over again by our former colonist or colonial power, um, or perhaps a different one, like or civil war. Right. Um, yes, certainly that that was a concern as well, or state by state conflict. Um, I think uh, probably more pressing was was the concern that. You know, we just liberated ourselves from the British Empire, but they could be back. And in fact, they were back. Um, And so, we need to hang together. Um, But like, Washington wanted to dissolve the military. He he didn't believe that the United States should have a standing army. And this is why in the Constitution, um, it makes reference to well-regulated militias. Hmm. This notion that, you know, citizens should have the capacity to defend themselves, they should be ready, but it, but it needs to be a citizen army, not a professional standing army. That is an instrument of tyranny. Um, and look where we are now.
1: Yeah. When, when we had the Brexit vote um, uh, to, for the UK to leave uh, the EU, uh, I really struggled with the decision. Because as Bitcoin, I was like, well, independence is better, you know, smaller states are better. Yada yada, yeah. um, but I really struggled with the decision. I ended up speaking to one of my friends, and he said the great thing about the EU is one of the biggest. It's one of the most successful peace projects the world has ever seen. Mm-hmm. We have not gone to war in you know countries in the EU have not gone to war. We've had war in Europe, we had the Balkans, but you know, you, you know countries within the EU have not gone to war with each other because mm-hmm. we are united. We might disagree with each other, but we're united, and so that that's always kind of like weighed heavily on me. And in, in that's you know, for all the bureaucracy and inefficiencies you get, the fact that you remove that incentive for war is kind of, you know, it's a big reason to vote to remain. Mm Because, I don't know, it just feels like the right thing to do. Um, I'm not really going anywhere with that, by the way.
0: (laughs) Well, I think what you're pointing to is that um, there was an economic friction that was removed in trade between European countries that did create a kind of rising tide of prosperity that incentivized the people to keep the peace. Yeah. Um, however, that there was a trade-off there. Um, you created a larger uh, administrative class in Brussels, Yes. Um, who then could dictate terms um, to every member of this union.
1: Uh, Brussels and Strasbourg. Do you know yes. about the EU moving to Strasbourg every month for three days? <laughs> Do you know about this? OK, tell okay, me. OK, so, uh, I mean, I, I, will f- I won't will get the details correct, but in the establishment of the EU, uh, I think it was the French disagreed with the idea that it would, you know, be placed, uh, it would just exist singularly within Belgium. Mm. And so the compromise was three days a month, the entire EU, I mean, they literally in lorries, they packed everything up, they moved to Strasbourg for three days, they operate there for three days and they go back. I think the cost is like 150 million. Have you found I'm it? I'm just having a look now. Yeah, I think it's at the cost of 150 million a wow. year. Wow. Yeah, here we go. Oh, EU Parliament's 114 million a year moved to Strasbourg, a waste of money, <laughs> but would it ever be scrapped? <laughs> so uh, just a on the history. Well, can you scroll down a bit more, Danny? Uh, yeah, the EU Parliament's triangle of locations, Strasbourg, Brussels, and Luxembourg, were formed to yeah. balance the original smaller European mm-hmm. Union. Among the costs accrued by the monthly relocation, however, includes transportation for thousands of parliament officials, political groups, parliamentary assistants, and freelance interpreters, in addition to paperwork that is transported by trucks between locations. In March, plenary resolution of the EP budget, it was noted that the environmental impact is significant, stands at between 11,000 and 19,000 tonnes of CO2 a year, the equivalent of driving between... Yeah, yada, yada, divest... Yeah, I mean, it's just fucking ridiculous. (laughs) They literally move it. You can understand why they argued for it at the time, but I think we're in an era where that that is unrequired. But yeah, there's a lot of inefficiency there. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you mentioned coherent state. Would you say it's an incoherent state
0: now, then? Well, um, there are significant incentives to um, maintaining the integrity of the US state. Um, One is, much like the European Union, interstate commerce. Um, I mean, if, if there were to be a breakup of the United States, the complexity of, you know, setting up bilateral trade relations between all of the states would, would make doing business in any of the former U S states prohibitive for a lot of companies. Um, and again, this common defense, um, you know, it's, it's maybe, uh, it's not so hard to imagine the United States fending off uh, a Chinese invasion. It's hard to imagine Mississippi fending off a Chinese invasion. And so um, there, there are, you know, in terms of economy and military sovereignty, um, really strong reasons to cohere. The question is, you know, what beyond that should the federal government do? Um, and I think that's really where the open question is. So.
1: Maintaining a common defense, there's a a solid and good argument for that, but uh, removing the power or the amount that the federal government gets involved in would make uh, the country more efficient, it would make it less imperialist, and that could lead to... I mean, how much of a common goal do you need? As long as you have strong states' rights and states' decisions, people have the ability to move and live where they want anyway.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a it's a question of uh, to what extent do we maintain the state apparatus that we built? Like just to give you a sense of this, um, there are currently 18 federal intelligence agencies. 18? 18, like (laughs) they've, they've been exponentially kind of growing, like there's a hockey stick curve. Um, And that's not to say anything of all of the, um, you know, federal basically police, you know, uh, law enforcement agencies and then the state uh, law enforcement, municipal county law enforcement. So that there's this massive and growing um, police apparatus that exists at all levels of government. And to what extent... You know, do people in Texas, for example, need to be subsidizing with their tax dollars, you know, all 18 of these intelligence agencies? I don't know.
1: Hmm. I'm not sure how to close this one out. Um, (laughs)
0: Let's open it.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I said to you, what next? You said build a coalition, but... Part of me thinks maybe things have to get worse before they get better. You know, I think, mm-hmm. I don't know the answer. Like, I'm so, totally intrigued by this subject, but I'm massively out of my depth adding to it because I'm not an American. I don't understand historical context. There's little I know about mm. it. What you put, you're going to have to close this one out for me, Natalie. <laughs> what question do you put out there?
0: No, I, I, I would like to end with an invitation to your listeners mm-hmm. to consider what it would be to build... Liberty, Um, what does that mean as a positive project? Um, You know, over the next few years, one of the reasons that I do research into political economy is because um, I I would actually like to turn these principles into a set of actionable policies that uh, something like a political, not necessarily party, but movement can form around. And this is why I'm, I'm actually genuinely inspired by the Solidarity Movement that took down the communist state in Poland. Um, I grew up, you know, hearing stories of this, and it was very much alive when I when I was a child. This was a coalition of right and left and people of different religions and atheists all across the spectrum to suggest self-determination is something that's worth fighting for. Um, and I think that spirit of solidarity can be rekindled again. Can you lead it? Well, I'm, I'm out here trying.
1: I mean, you have the historical context with your parents. It would feel only right that you were to carry that torch on here in the U.S. and yeah. drive forward that solidarity. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you would have my full support and backing, and <laughs> the limited resources I have to help you. Uh, I hope, I hope you do it. I'm so sick of it. I'm yeah. so sick of it. I'm, I'm, I'm regret anything I've got involved in that is uh, drives polarization. I've got zero interest anymore. I, yeah. All I, ca- I I just care about trying to bring people together. I don't want to say it in a uh, Lex Friedman, l- everyone, but but at the same time, like, there is something to be said for that. Like, yeah. we just, we need to bring people together.
0: Absolutely. This is just the beginning. Yes.
1: Uh, we, me and Danny are going to be looking for, out, out there looking for the Natalie Smolensky Solidarity Movement. Yes. Uh, creating solidarity between the the left and the right and hopefully ending this bullshit. Uh, Natalie, (laughs) I was well out of my depth today, but I absolutely love talking to you and listening to you talk about this and I wish you all the success. Uh, Where do you want to send people?
0: All right. So, um, txbitcoinfoundation.org.
1: I owe you some money.
0: Oh, well.
1: No, I do. (laughs) I've totally forgot about that. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to send you some money.
0: So, we want to do... We're already publishing the Satoshi Papers. Mm-hmm. This is the first academic journal. Um, we're bringing together historians, economists, social scientists, philosophers to write about why Bitcoin matters for human societies and for state society relations specifically. Um, so that book is coming out and by the end of this year. Um, And then we also want to do some fun events like we want to engage people. We want to bring like some really smart people who aren't necessarily Bitcoiners, but who write about the stuff that we've been talking about today. Because I think Bitcoiners are some of the most intellectually curious people that I've ever met and they're hungry for this. So let's let's do it.
1: That was the question I didn't ask. I forgot I have a Bitcoin show. <laughs> what does the role of Bitcoin play in this solidarity?
0: Well, um, it's, it's a reminder that um, all, all power is not top-down from the state. Um, in fact, value is an emergent phenomenon. It emerges bottom-up as individual people opt into something that is better than what they're currently living. Um, And so what Bitcoin is, first and foremost, is an alternative. Um, It's a new way of imagining, it's a new way of relating. Um, People have forgotten what a freedom to transact means, that I can just pay you for something without having to involve a third party intermediary, without having to prove my identity to some panopticon, without having to demonstrate that I'm a good and loyal subject. No. The government is subject to me. I am the source of sovereignty. You are the source of sovereignty. So let's take that back. Yeah,
1: honestly, I should show you this email afterwards. We've got our quote for the opening of the show, I think. Yeah, I think we have. <laughs> um, so in, in buying this house, right, I have to send six months of bank statements and prove I have the funds in, um, in my bank account. And now I've got my solicitors combing over all my private transactions and questioning, and, you know, obviously there's Bitcoin transactions in yeah. there, there's, you know, and they're asking me what it's about, what it's for, can I prove it, and it's it's such, you know, not only is it invasive, but it's like why I'm not a criminal here, right? What the fuck have I done wrong? Exactly, you know, it, surely I mean, if I was American, surely this, you know, would be against the the Fourth Amendment. Yeah, the, <laughs> sort you, of. Sort of. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, that's search and seizure, isn't it?
0: Well, this is the thing. The, these constitutional rights are meaningless.
1: You need a new constitution.
0: <laughs> no, we need. Um, we need a leadership class with the character to live by it. Integrity. Yes. Wow.
1: Integrity and politicians don't go hand in hand. <laughs>
0: Natalie, listen.
1: I absolutely love talking to you. You can come on this show whenever you want. Me and Danny will have you whenever, whatever you want to talk about. Uh, anyone listening, go in the show notes, read the article. Please go and check out the previous interview we have done and remind the- what's the name of the association?
0: The Texas Bitcoin Foundation.
1: That's it. The Texas Bitcoin Foundation, in which Danny will remind me to make sure I send you some money to support <laughs> so you, everything you're doing. Happy New Year. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. All right. What did you make of that? Did you enjoy that? Did you check out my previous show I made with Natalie? If you haven't, that is linked in the show notes. Go and check it out. That is two absolute bangers I've made with her. Now, anytime I'm back in Texas, I will be reaching out to Natalie. I will be having her back on the show. I absolutely love talking to her. Okay. Another thing to update you on, I've relaunched our Patreon page. Now, me and Danny were talking about this when we were back out in the U.S., It's been there for a couple of years now. It's a little bit tired. We haven't really offered anything new for a while, so we've been working on that for the last about three months now. Just refreshing it, coming up with some new ideas for additional content and bonuses for some of our subscribers. Now, one of those things is we do offer a show early, so any shows we release will be two days earlier for Patreon subscribers, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff. And the show that's been released for Patreons today is The Truth About Nuclear. It's an amazing show. You might want to go and check that out early. Anyway, you can find that at patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. All right, outside of that, have a great rest of your week, and I will see you all on Friday.